Welcome to the ACA Media Podcast, brought to you by the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. And the Association of Prepositions. Yes, sir. We should seek a sponsorship. I'm sure yeah. there's an organization like that out there somewhere. We can yeah. get some free prepositions. I don't know what we I think so. Us. I mean, there's lolly lolly, get your adverbs here. There's got to be a, you know. Yeah. we gotta, we got to work that angle. Some phrases we and have, clauses. Uh, <laughs> We've we've done this many episodes and we don't have a sponsorship yet. We might as well. Well, I mean, we do. We have SEMS, of course. But we do. We do. Yeah. Uh, I am Michael Kackman at the University of Notre Dame. I am Christine Becker, still not at the University of Notre Dame right now. So how are things going out there in uh, not at University of Notre Dame land? It is good. I mean, I think when we last bantered, I mentioned how I was looking forward to it being November. And it is November. And, you know, not to be a jerk, but... The weather's really nice. Hey, it's pretty good up here, too. It's uh, The sun is shining. It's 55 degrees. That's perfect. That's it's perfect. Okay. It's okay. Late fall weather. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I have a topical question. You getting a lot okay. of work done? I, I was for a good while there. Like, yeah. I was as efficient as you can be in September. I wrote a whole chapter and then October came and I had a few trips and then, you know, it just sort of like turned a little bit more to research than writing. And so now I'm trying to get that train chugging again. And it really is hard when you stop to get that momentum going again. So I'm, I'm trying. Well, thinking is working too. Um, and that's what we're here to talk about this week. Yes, labor. Yeah. And we do. See, that was a, that was a good segue, wasn't it? It was, was it was so subtle. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was uh yeah and we 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 aren't breaking news this has you know happened whatever 24 hours ago and you'll not hear this for like a week uh after we record it but finally the sag after strike is nearly over there'll be a ratification vote maybe that happens you know before this podcast is out i'm not sure but basically the strike is over right we have um you know kind of labor rest at this point but a lot of fallout still to come from you know finding out what all these deals add up to to you know people and especially below the line workers who have been out of work for many many months you know getting their lives back on track moving back into their you know to la all of that kind of stuff so still still some upheaval to come yeah, it'll be interesting to see how things how things go getting these machines started back up again because they don't exactly turn on a dime. Yeah. Well, and uh, we have more on labor strife in Hollywood. And you might have heard a lot about it lately. I noticed it's being picked up by a lot of the industry, uh, you know, um, sources like Puck and The Ankler. And this is reality TV labor and efforts at unionization within reality TV. I hate to uh, spoil the lead, but... It's not great. No, it's not. Yeah. And maybe in working you know, conditions in certain are pretty ways, rough. Yeah, and in some ways even worse than um, you know, certainly scripted efforts. You you know, you may have heard also about uh, challenges within the animation space, but for various reasons it sounds like late reality TV is even worse and if you don't know the particulars of that, you're about to learn them. Courtesy of our very own Stephanie Brown, who sat down with, uh, or sat at a Zoom, I guess, with Andrea Rulick, who is at the University of New Brunswick, for the conversation about reality TV labor and unionization efforts. Let's go.
we are not the first people by far to note that reality cast members tend to be understudied. It's great that we're having this conversation. I think it's really important that legally we're starting to have this conversation. Obviously, it has existed, but it's picking up some traction and the news reports as some of these lawsuits have been filed has definitely been much heavier than the news coverage surrounding the previous lawsuits that have been going on for decades at this point. You've likely been following the WGA and SAG after strikes that have disrupted film and television in order to secure more fair working conditions and pay for writers and actors. But you may not have been following as closely the lawsuits and calls for labor action within the realm of reality television. While it's not anything new for production companies or networks to face lawsuits from former cast members or contestants, there seemed to be something more brewing lately from multiple ongoing lawsuits against Love is Blind production company Kinetic Content to Bethany Frankel's calls for unionization of reality stars back in July. We also spent the summer talking about exploitation and the responsibilities of producers to the safety of on-screen talent in the wake of things like the firing of multiple cast members from below deck after producers had to intervene to stop sexual assaults on camera. So to talk about reality TV and labor in the context of the ongoing labor actions, I decided to talk to Dr. Andrea Rulick. My name's Andrea Rulick, and I am both a contract instructor in sociology and the assistant to the deans in the School of Graduate Studies at the University of New Brunswick. And her work on reality TV show contestants and the labor that they do. So I wrote my dissertation on the labor of Canadian reality contestants, uh, individuals that were participating in skill and talent-based competition programs, people who were going on shows based on singing ability, fashion ability, modeling ability, dancing ability, trying to potentially pursue careers in various industries. A bunch of people were lovely with their time and were willing to talk to me about their experiences and how they navigated the process, how they felt about the process. More recently, she wrote an article for Celebrity Studies about the echoes from the control studios had over actors during the heyday of the star system and the way that reality contestants' lives and future work are similarly controlled by production companies and networks, but without any of the monetary reward or recognition or even their labor being taken seriously. In looking at that history, it gives us a sense of potential options for reality cast members today who in many ways are beholden to a lot of these similar constrictions around their names, their lives, everything being reported, compensation, and yet don't have kind of the benefits, at least that the names in the studio system, right, were rewarded with for giving up that control over their image and self. To wit, Tim Gunn has been talking about the way Project Runway has been trying to own the work of its designers since the beginning of the show. I'm with Jay McCarroll, the season one winner, going through his winning contract. We're going through it simultaneously, and we both reach page 11 and look up at each other with wide, wide eyes, saying, and I look at him, I said, you can't sign this. He said, I won't sign it, because it said that whatever... Jay McCarroll earned from that point forever, 15% would go to Miramax. Right. And also speaks to just the importance of having someone who has more bargaining power because Tim can threaten to leave and things change potentially or are modified. Whereas a contestant threatens to leave and the stakes are much less lower. It's like, oh, well, if you want to choose, if you want to throw this opportunity away, 
So they're still beholden to a lot of those rules, but don't have the rewards. And so if we're looking at how that has changed for actors, then we can see potentially some movement forward for reality cast members today. She also talked about the secrecy required by contestants that disrupts their lives before the show even airs. Because a lot of individuals can't tell or are very limited to who they can tell that they're going to be on a program until it airs or until the ads start coming out for it, uh, people had to create kind of whole webs of half-truths as to why they weren't going to be available in their regular lives for a month to two months. How do you ask for help in arranging childcare when you can't really tell anyone why you won't be there for two months? And just kind of the spreadsheets and like life control that people had to think about. And the way that we often forget as an audience, even those of us who study this, how much control producers and editors have over the way a contestant or cast member comes across in the edit. And because people are bound by fairly restrictive lawsuits or the fear of fairly restrictive lawsuits, there's just so much of it that has never been really talked about. And so this is exactly what I study. And I'm still shocked constantly at just like the layers of things that, of course, so many of us buy into the magic of the show. We know things are edited. We know people are maybe coached in some ways or like encouraged. And then you end up like, Maybe no, maybe not at all. Everything is, everything is a lie. We also talked about the potential for some kind of unionization of reality show talent in the wake of particularly Bethany Frankel's calls for unionization in July. In the past, it has always been times of turbulence in the industry. Extras were brought in to SAG-AFTRA because there was a potential cutting down of pay for actors. And so in an attempt to boost numbers, all of a sudden it was like, we need we need people in the union. And so extras were brought in that way. What we're seeing currently kind of in this moment of turbulence, hence the strikes, there is a potential to kind of see these joint concerns for everyone working in the industry. And potentially this is the moment where reality cast members and or writers are brought into the various unions. And yet... Um, when extras were brought in, for example, there was in some ways a creation of a caste system in the union in that they often didn't work enough or have enough hours uh, to actually get a vote in what was happening, but were still expected to abide by the rules. And yet once they were ensconced in the union, their working conditions did change and improve and they were able to use the union and the union was there to help fight for their working conditions as well. So yeah, it doesn't always look great, but also once once you're in the union, history sends to suggest that it does help. Yeah. And then in July, we kind of see the introduction of Bethany Frankel from the Housewives franchise. And she has started talking about the unionization of reality stars, is starting to do interviews about it. Bethany, why should reality stars join the striking SAG union workers and the WGA writers? I think that we should have our own union and terms that networks and streamers should abide by. There are different issues. It's a different medium and some issues overlap, but there are different circumstances. And has been in contact with um, or her two lawyers, Mark Yergos and Brian Friedman, have been talking to and have sent letters to NBC that they are planning on or in the process of launching a lawsuit and have a number of reality 
cast members who are have been in talks with them, potentially signing on to this lawsuit. There, of course, also have been numerous lawsuits over the years by reality show talent against production companies for the kind of exploitation we've been talking about. Um, but some of the bigger ones that are worth talking about uh, in 2017, for instance, uh, there was the stars of The Little Couple uh, from TLC ended up suing TLC's parent company and the producer, The Cable Group, over ownership rights to the program. And while their appeals, I believe their appeals are still ongoing, so far the only settlements that have occurred have been between the production companies. So even when lawsuits are filed, it's not always the individual themselves who benefits from that lawsuit. Back in 2014, there were 10 American Idol contestants, Black American Idol contestants, who had come together to allege the program exploited their criminal or criminal background checks and rap sheets of Black contestants. But it was largely dismissed when it was ruled that nine out of the 10 plaintiffs had not filed in time. You know, there's a number of lawsuits, but I think to me, those two are kind of key ones because they're ones where they were dismissed or ongoing. More recently, there have been a great deal of attention on two lawsuits brought by participants on Netflix's dating show Love is Blind, both of them alleging exploitative conditions, a lack of food, false imprisonment, and the more recent of which alleges the production failed to protect a female contestant from sexual assault. So late 2022, um, a Love is Blind contestant, Jeremy Hartwell, has filed a lawsuit against both Kinetic and Delirium TV uh, about the Love is Blind working conditions. And then Nick Thompson, who is also from Love is Blind, the two of them are doing a lot of interviews together to talk about labor conditions and exploitative conditions. They are in control of every element of your life. You're put in a hotel room and you don't have a key. You don't have access to water unless you want to drink it out of the faucet or the shower. We're all just sitting there not being fed um, on any kind of regular cadence, uh, but definitely being fed a lot of alcohol. My body was just exhausted and, and dehydrated. And then they start you can. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode. Today, we have two guests. First, we have Dr. Isabel Morley, who is a licensed clinical psychologist and co-founding board member and director of mental health for the Unscripted Cast Advocacy Network, or the UCAN Foundation. And we have Jeremy Hartwell, who's a performance coach and consultant and co-founder and executive of executive director of the UCAN Foundation. And what is the UCAN Foundation, if you haven't heard? We uh, provide mental health support to past, current, and future reality TV stars. It is interesting that they're focusing on kind of the entire lifespan of participation in that they're hoping to talk to people who are thinking about going on reality TV to kind of potentially providing more sense of what you might be getting into and to look over contracts. And then also to connect anyone after the fact or after filming or who's still kind of in that realm, both as a connection point so that people can come together and talk about experiences and also to, if needed or desired, to link people up to mental health supports across the country. What is fascinating to me about this um, is how this is in some ways a formalization of what a lot of the individuals I talked to were already kind of doing. A lot of the shows had kind of developed unofficial networks of support and that people tended to reach out to the next season of cast members to check in on them, see how they're doing, just let them know that they existed, right? Like there is this kind of shared community. 
to have a like stable and formalized thing that is not kind of reliant on one particular show or one person or one group, small group of people kind of doing all of this labor, I think is a really important and helpful step forward, right? Like becomes a visible tool to help promote things like a potentially unionization. Of course, these lawsuits tend to bring out folks saying things like, well, what did you expect when you're going on a reality show? You knew what you were getting into. Even people who watched the shows to prepare and had a sense of, oh, this is probably a thing that's going to come up or this is probably a challenge that like I should be prepared for. They went in thinking they had a decent sense of what would be expected of them, but they couldn't. They were prepared for the tasks themselves that would be set out for them. Oh, I know I'll have to dance every week or create dishes on the fly or what have you. But they were not ready for the mental the mental and emotional toll that that takes and how kind of being cut off from all of your support systems, right? Like what happens when, when you're done at the end of the day, you can't scroll TikTok, you can't call a friend, you can't do anything other than like just exist in a world and be filmed. Yeah, that there was absolutely no way that anyone could have prepared them for that. And so the sense of like, you know what you're getting into, from what everyone has said, you just can't know what you're getting into until you're there. And then the stakes are so much higher. Yeah, and that I know a couple of people I talked to talked about even the like leaving the filming environment when they were done and just not being prepared for sunlight or crowds or sounds because everything is largely silent except for the people you're talking to or right because you want decent quality audio for filming you can't have music playing because of rights potentially unless it's a song you're creating in your head on that moment and so it was just quiet and isolated and then you go out in the real world and there are lights and sounds and people and it had only been a month, a couple days, two months for some people. And it was just like such a culture shock that they weren't expecting to have them to hit them like that. On the other hand, unexpectedly, many of the folks she interviewed for her dissertation had a surprising answer when asked if they'd go on a show, if they could go back in time and do it over again. Well, one of the most fascinating things for me in talking to people who have been on shows was how many people including people who had a terrible time on it, said that they would do it again. And obviously, I don't know what reasoning before that. But I think in some ways, part of it is a desire to have a second go at it, right? Like, now you've experienced it. Now you know, you have more of a sense of what you're getting into. So a chance to like, take those lessons and see what you can do feels kind of like a natural, I want to do it again, I want to get better. Of course, we couldn't end without talking about Scandaval. All right, the pop culture story of the year broke in March when the hit reality show Vanderpump Rules was rocked by a shocking cheating scandal. Ariana Maddox and Tom Sandoval's breakup was fodder for tabloid headlines as their relationship painfully unraveled in front of millions of people. Ariana is joining us now for her first morning show interview since the breakup. And about how Andrea thinks it ties into bigger conversations about the growing awareness and naming of exploitation and precarity and labor on reality TV. All of the media attention and like all of the ways that that circulated through the discourse and all of the podcasts and interviews and 
I think in some ways is kind of instrumental. I did not think I would think this much about Sheena or Adriana or Tom Sandoval uh, in terms of being the forefront of current ideas of labor protection. But I think because of Scandal and how much attention Vanderpump Rules and its cast was given in the last couple months and how visible kind of the circuit of going on various podcasts or TV shows to talk about the labor involved and timelines and who is doing what where, I think that season has kind of really brought attention to both the constructed nature as we can see the like breakdown in timelines we were filming this, somehow this didn't get filmed because so much of their life is happening not on camera, which clearly belies the fact that it's just filming your lives and we're catching everything. But I think in having everyone talk about their feelings and what was happening and who was filming when and who knew what, there was a wider cultural conversation, even as everyone is just talking about scandal, right? And who's cheating on who and who knew what when. We're seeing the constructive nature of the filming process and how much work is happening and in terms of heartbreak right like the real life emotional consequences of filming and so i think having this happen when it did in some ways created this more cultural awareness so that jeremy's lawsuit which was filed before a lot of us were thinking about vanderpump rules in this way all of a sudden that conversation seems more timely when people are starting to talk about love is blind, you can see those connections to like a smaller version of what's happening in leashes. And it's just kind of making all of those connections in labor more visible for a lot of people. And now that those conversations are happening, more and more people are being brought in, more and more people, safety in numbers is always a thing. So more and more former contestants, current contestants, castmates, uh, what have you, can talk about their experiences. And so we're getting kind of a fuller sense as this acknowledgement of this is labor is coming as SAG-AFTRA and the WGA are also talking about all of the labor that they're doing. We're seeing kind of this confluence of look at all of the ways the entertainment industry is a nightmare and how many people you would think to be doing well or having financial success or being a name are also making clear that they are not doing as well as we might think. The top of the pyramid is a lot smaller than a lot of us like to imagine. And so everything is kind of just coming together this cultural moment as people are just talking about unions far more. And I think reality television, potentially cast members, um, anyone involved in it is aware. Everyone is aware that the strike potentially creates a space where they're seen as the safety option, right? Networks don't have to bargain um, with the unions because they can rely on reality television. And so I think intentional or not, there's a very kind of clear sense of we are not pawns to be used in this way. This is our opportunity to join in these labor struggles and have a space for voices to be heard rather than a product to be exploited. Thanks again to Andrea Rulick, and you can read her article in Celebrity Studies from um, volume 13 from 2022 called Everything Old is New Again, Reality Television Celebrity, The Hollywood Studio System, and the Battle for Control of One's Image, and her dissertation, So You've Been on a Show, The Life Cycle and Labor of Reality Television Contestants. So excellent work by Stephanie there, and thanks so much to Andrea Rulick for sharing her expertise with us. Yeah, it's a it's an area of uh, media work that 
a lot of people just don't pay attention to, or they don't think of it as work, or they don't think of it as being about performance. And Hmm. none of that stuff is true, of course. Yeah, I was thinking it's sort of like, you know, the way at conferences 10, 15 years ago, we'd always say like, you know, no one's working on two and a half men. Everyone's watching and no one's working on it because it felt like the something that no one really, I shouldn't say no one, but a lot of academics don't care for it. And so they didn't work on it. It was seen as sort of like beneath the, the, um, the prestige drama people wanted to work on, the quality TV. And this seems like that same kind of realm, right? That uh, it's, you know, and particularly as it comes up in the conversation there of, well, what did these people expect? They did reality TV, right? And that sort of dismissal of reality yeah. TV as something legitimate. Um, and so I really, really am glad Andrea's working on this because I think it's really important overlooked work. Clearly the uh, production companies think that it's that the dollars are legitimate. Yeah. And the cable TV schedules that are completely full of this stuff, like they think it's legitimate. And so the mm-hmm. people who are actually donating their lives and personalities and images to it, then maybe we should treat them as legitimate too. Yeah, and that's the tough thing because the you know that cheapness of reality TV to produce is is the feature, not the bug for management. And I think that's a lot of the you know additional things I've read about this are that it's actually pretty unlikely you're going to end up having unionization effort because it it can be so cheaply made and you can swap out people relatively easily. And so you don't have the kind of um, unit you know kind of fighting force that you do with with SAG or or WGA through reality TV. And so um, that seems like a difficult role to have for this. Yeah. For most of these people, they're not, they're not looking at a career of moving from production to production to production. It's, mm-hmm. the, it's a one-time thing, or maybe they'll, you know, do a follow-up or something if it's really popular, but this is not, um, these are not career jobs. And so there's, there isn't that kind of built-in mechanism to protect working conditions for yourself uh, down the line. It's purely about whoever comes next. Yeah. Um, the other piece I found really interesting is the use of terminology like unscripted, right? Which is uh, a misnomer in terms of the fact that there is writing going on, but it's the kind of, you know, the way in which in our realm, in um, in college uh, athletics and the idea of the term student athlete came up because they didn't want them called employees because if you call the athletes employees and you're responsible for things like workers comp and now we all just I casually use the word student athlete myself but every time I use it I stop and think like wait a minute you're using the word they want you to use so it's framed how they want it and basically so that um uh, you know, they don't have to pay, yeah, as much as they want. It's the same kind of thing here as well. I guess, you know, it's, it'd be nice to be able to be a little bit hopeful that there's a kind of cumulative effect of the attention to these kinds of workplace issues across different industries and across different kinds of work. Um, and that there's a little bit of a mm-hmm. rising tides lifts all boats kind of thing. Because um, I think once you you can't uncrack that egg once people recognize that a certain kind of work exists and and see its relationship to other kinds of work, then it's really, really mm-hmm. hard to, you know, you there's a kind of ethical obligation of witnessing there, I think, you know, once you realize that, yes, these are, which of course shouldn't take a moment of realization, but somehow it does, to recognize that these are, yeah. are humans who are being... Um, yeah, maybe they chose to be there, but they didn't choose to be abused and locked in hotel rooms and um, completely <laughs> surrender their um, 
bodily autonomy just to get one bite at this, you know, magic apple. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think at least that's another byproduct of labor organization and, and movements is education. So, of course, they're fighting for contracts, but you know, I learned so much more about how writers do what they do and actors do what they do, um, or issues like AI, right? And understanding ways in which AI are going to be used uh, is going to be used because of what you know the actors were fighting for. Um, and so, you know, I've learned a ton about reality TV from the conversation we just heard, and and the ways in which the industry itself is starting to pay attention to it. So, um, you know, labor movements help educate as well. I think that's that's something we've all learned a lot about in the last few years as those movements have yep, really risen absolutely. up. Absolutely. Well, these are interesting times, and the conversation is clearly not over. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, another uh-huh. segue, um, we we don't talk too much about things that happen at Notre Dame just because who else cares, but uh, you know, something recently happened at Notre Dame that is very much on the, the national radar, and I wasn't there, so I want to hear all about it. Uh, Michael, tell me about what happened at Notre Dame last Friday. Oh, yeah. Friday. Well, um, you know, it was, a, it was a lovely South Bend Friday. <laughs> um, no, we put on a little, we put on a little thing. Uh, we hosted mm-hmm. um, a day-long symposium uh, about drag and performance in popular culture. And um, Pam Wojcik, our chair and um, regular uh, SCMS uh, member and uh, occasional leader, um, she ran a one-credit class on the history of drag representations. And she was starting, you know, way, way back Um she had mm-hmm. silent material and classical Hollywood and TV and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, and then our culminating event for that um, rather lively day was a, a performance with Blair St. Clair from RuPaul's Drag Race and a couple mm-hmm. of local folks as well. So we had a we had a um, we had a thing. <laughs> and it got a little it got bit a little bit of attention. Some, and some honestly, of course. you know, um, a tiny handful of um, of students and probably their faculty advisors were were grumpy about it and didn't think that our university should host such a thing that it shouldn't exist on this campus and they were disappointed because their uh, campaign to get the president and provost to cancel it was unsuccessful. We had. Mm-hmm. We had good support, I think, from the upper administration that that recognized that what we were doing was, um, yeah, there was a performance, but there was also a lot of information and a lot of different kinds of points of view that were represented. I think, honestly, yeah, the, the performance was fun and it was great and the performance were great, but we had um, a panel organized by uh, some grad students from the law school who um, and there are also a couple of performers that were that participated in that panel talking about drag bands, and they had a mm-hmm. an attorney who was um, deeply involved in multiple um, drag band lawsuits, and honestly, mm-hmm. it was really really eye opening. I mean, I feel like I generally pay attention to these kinds of things and have some sense of what's going on, but the way that they were able to really kind of articulate the issues and make a, a really impassioned defense of not just the First Amendment, but the Sixth and the Fourteenth. And um, 
and really talking about it in talking about drag bands alongside other kinds of speech bands um, and connecting it to things like religious liberty was really, really great. Mm. Um, and my only disappointment is that the people who were uh, praying loudly outside, desperately hoping that they could cancel the whole thing, that they didn't come in and actually sit down and engage in a mm. conversation because they might have learned something. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the kind of, you know, and I don't know that dialogue happens in those kind of situations, especially when you have one side that's very intractable. But I, you know, I think that's one, uh, you know, some of the issues I have with things that go on at Notre Dame, I think at least it is a place that welcomes those kinds yeah. of questions. And, and if multiple sides are willing to, to talk, those dialogues can happen. Um, so yeah, it would have been nice. Um, to, you know, if that kind of thing could have happened. But again, yeah. I don't know how realistic it is that they would be interested in sharing their yeah. hearing. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, you <laughs> the, never know. The and, um, and maybe maybe it planted something that somebody will think about later, and that's okay. One thing that was really, really clear was that the students who finally felt like they were represented and um, mm. that they had a space where there was institutional power being exerted to protect their ability to own that space, that was really, really yeah. great. You know, there were um, yeah, there were students there who clearly didn't feel like they could be visible in the ways that they were visible um, there um, in the rest of their mm. lives, or at least the rest of their lives on campus. And that was really, really palpable. And honestly, the thank you notes that came in, uh, not just from... Um, individual students, but from people from interesting places all across campus was really, really great. And I'm not going to, you know, name names or, or, um, or institutions or departments, but it was, you know, there, there were a lot of people who were, who were, uh, thankful that we, that we, uh, managed to put this together. And so I'm, I'm proud to have helped. Um, I am really, really grateful to Pam Wojcik for, uh, stepping out right out front and, and taken a lot of bullets from uh, that she didn't deserve to have taken, but she did. Uh, and we had Hollis Griffin uh, from the University of Michigan and Meredith Heller from University of Northern Arizona, who both gave really great keynotes. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Um, so it was a it was a that's big great. success as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's great. Then an, an ideal of that kind of event where, um, you know, you have the kind of academic realm around it. And so we all learn something, but also it sounds like there was a lot yeah. of joy in the event yeah. as well. So that's, yeah, that's great. That's a good way to put it. And hope that carries yeah. on in some way. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I hope it's not the last. I don't think it will be. Yeah. And I hope Pam can safely check yeah. her email these days yeah. without having well, to... Well, you know... Hold there was a breath. lot of noise made about there being 1,200 emails uh, of complaint. Mm. The vast majority of them were generated by an auto form. And um, so the same typos and grammatical errors came through mm. in every single one. So that was actually kind of handy. Made it right. really easy to sort. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Put a filter on a couple of those misspellings yep. and you're yep. good to go. It was fine. It was fine. All right. All right. Cool. All right. I think the uh, the beautiful fall day is calling out to us. So, thanks for <laughs> thanks for uh, listening to us in your ears. We are grateful to the Society for Cinema and Media Studies and to the University of Notre Dame for their support. Thank you to Stephanie Brown, who is at Washington College, and thank you to her interview partner and Andrea Rulek at the University of New Brunswick. 
Also, we are grateful to our other uh, co-conspirators, Todd Thompson at the University of Texas. And Frank Mondelli at the University of Delaware. And then next episode, you're going to hear uh, our first bit of work from one of our new uh, participants. It's Jonathan Nichols-Pethick, who will chat with his DePaul Media Studies colleague, Jordan Scholl, about Scholl's JCMS article about medium specificity, as well as his work as a co-writer of the recent film, How Do You Blow Up a Pipeline? So look for that soon. A fascinating conversation. All right. Good stuff coming up in the pipeline. Oh, well done. Uh, <laughs> At least it wasn't a banjo joke. Oh.